This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 1.14, Tick Tick Boom, and we're your hosts. I'm Tom, longtime Gundam fan and just a guy who lives around here. And I'm Nina, Gundam noob and lucky, carefree Earthling. <laughs> but you have so many cares. Bold of you to use that phrase when you have so many cares. This week, we are discussing episode 14 of Mobile Suit Gundam, Time, Be Still, or in Japanese, Jikan yo tomare. And it means basically the same thing, not much to talk about there. After the recap, we have some added research on the Neo-Confucian Gekko Kujo philosophy, what the Memphis Bell, Audie Murphy, and Imperial Japan's greatest fighter aces all had in common, and some new Xeon weapons that actually aren't new at all. But first... At a Xeon base on Earth, soldiers go about a normal evening. Some watch a magician performing a USO-style show, others repair the base's mobile suits or go out on patrol. Some sit around, drinking coffee and complaining about the bugs, which they never had to deal with on Xeon. One soldier begins to enlist help for a plan. With the tacit approval of their superiors, but little to no material support, they can get a group of volunteers and try to take out the Gundam. If they are successful, they will be allowed to go home. Meanwhile, the white base hides in the jungle and conducts repairs. Lieutenant Matilda is there with resupply, but no additional crew and no specific orders. When she explains that rookies come up with very original ideas when left to their own devices, Bright complains that the Federation and General Revel are using them as guinea pigs. Matilda counters that it is only thanks to General Revel that Bright is safe from court-martial and possible execution. And besides, he has also ordered Bright promoted. Amuro wanders over to them, eager to see Lieutenant Matilda again, and both Bright and Matilda admonish him to go back inside to eat and get as much rest as he can. As Amuro returns to his room, he runs into an irritated and jealous Fravo. Oblivious, he wonders what her problem is. The Xeon soldiers spot Matilda's ship and know that the White Base and the Gundam must be nearby. A single Zaku, covered by a Lugan and a group of unarmored hoverbikes with machine guns, damages an engine on the Federation vessel. For once, eager to launch the Gundam, Amuro quickly moves to fend off the Xeon force, allowing Matilda's ship to escape. But in his eagerness to take out the enemy Zaku, he is led into a trap. Swarmed by the small and highly mobile hoverbikes, Amuro fails to notice when they plant magnetized explosive charges all over the Gundam. When the charge on his shield explodes after being shot, Amuro realizes what has happened and takes the Gundam to a nearby clearing. Their plan executed, the Xeon soldiers retreat to the tree line to wait for their charges to explode. The timers are set for 30 minutes. There is some debate among the white base crew about how to remove the bombs safely, and once they determine a method, Amuro volunteers. On the bridge, Fra is distraught. How can they let him do this alone? Mirai is stern and logical. No one is better suited, and they shouldn't risk more people than they have to. 
At the edge of the forest, the Xeon soldiers watch Amuro work and laugh over how brave and foolhardy he must be. Suddenly, there's a problem. The last of the bombs is under the Gundam's foot, and Amuro won't be able to move it in time. The bridge crew dash outside. Ryu hoists Hayato into the Gundam cockpit so that he can move the foot. Kai drives a jeep, carrying Amuro and the so far unexploded bombs away. Ryu drives a second jeep, picking up Amuro and Kai after they've abandoned the first jeep and the bombs a safe distance from the Gundam. The explosion is massive, but the white base, the Gundam, and the crew are all safe. After the strain of the last half hour, the white base crew collapse, rest, and try to recover. A van drives up full of young men, asking questions and teasing an exhausted Amuro before driving away. Amuro thinks that they are Earth people, and marvels at how lucky they are, how carefree and happy they seem. But Bright and Mirai realize that the young men in the van were likely the same men who planted the bombs on the Gundam. And then pan flutes. And then pant flutes. <laughs> this is kind of an odd episode. For most of the episodes so far, we've been able to kind of break the episode up into themes or subtopics for us to respond to and talk about, and this episode does not lend itself well to that structure. Yeah, at this point, the show seems to have fallen into a pattern of more or less alternating episodes that focus on either Amro and his issues and his development versus everybody else. And this is one of those episodes, last episode we saw Amro dealing with his mother, this episode Amro stands still and everybody moves around him. And we get to see some interesting development from everybody else. I think they also try to avoid having contiguous episodes of Amuro being a mess. <laughs> We're still thinking about what he's going through. We're very aware of the fact that, oh, this little crush he has on Matilda is in some way enabling him to do his job more enthusiastically than he was before. We also see him still afraid to shoot people and still wound up and still not always making the best strategic decisions because of his fear and his response to the stress he's been under. Yeah, it's very generous of you to say that Amuro is not a mess in this episode. He's just a different kind of mess. Hot mess. <laughs> we have these first two scenes at the beginning of Matilda with Bright, and we have Amuro and Frau. Oh, so you're going to skip right past the Xeon guys. I think of the Xeon guys, they're kind of a separate element, right? I suppose. I suppose we almost have the two big categories of the Xeon soldiers and the white base crew. Mm -hmm. And they almost, other than the battle itself, there's no overlap, right? <laughs> They're in their separate spheres doing their separate things. Until the end. Correct. At the very end of the episode, when the Xeon guys put on civilian disguises and drive up <laughs> in their station wagon. To taunt Amro. <laughs> yeah, I guess it feels like taunting. Gentle ribbing? I don't know. <laughs> I never thought Gundam would teach me the Japanese word for station wagon. What is it? Wagon. There were various points, depending on the angle of the shot, where I thought it looked more like a bus. Apparently, whoever drew this stuff, not very good at drawing cars. Future cars. Yeah, yeah, okay. We'll come back to them. You mentioned the sort of contrasting interactions of Matilda and Bright and Amaro and Fra. Mm-hmm. This is one of the few episodes that allows Frau to be a person and not just a icon of maternal duty and goodness. It's true. We see Amuro come back from wandering around the white base, I guess. And Fra is waiting for him, almost like a wife waiting for her husband to get home. Where have you been? 
And he lies to her. Yep. Which, you know, he may be aware that things are somewhat complicated between them. They certainly seemed very affectionate with each other back in episode 12. And yet things remain unresolved or unaddressed. And he does have this very obvious crush on Matilda. Maybe he just needs to fall on top of Frau again. <laughs> Frau in that oversized army jacket is a fierce look. Whose jacket is that? That's, That's what Frau's I want to know. jacket now. <laughs> well, yes, obviously it's Frau's jacket now. She looks good in it. Yeah. Also, Haro has clearly chosen a side and Haro has chosen Frau. Haro has chosen wisely. Amuro's brainwaves are all messed up, man. Maybe Haro, like Amuro, has a mother complex. <laughs> also, let's talk about... Betsuni Nanimonai, which is, oh, nothing much. Nothing which, special. Which is both what Frau says in this episode when Amuro... Asks her what's wrong? Yeah. When Amuro comes back and she asks where he's been and he lies and then he asks what's wrong. She says, oh, nothing. It's also the same phrase that Mirai uses when Mirai enters Bright's cabin in episode 12 and he asks, oh, what do you need? And she says, oh, nothing much. I really like the phrase betsuni nanimonai because it doesn't mean nothing. It means sort of like, oh, nothing in particular, nothing special. It implies that maybe there is something, just not something important. <laughs> well, and in terms of Frau's response to that situation, one, we have her somewhat petulantly telling Amuro, oh, nothing's wrong, whatever, you know, we're not going to talk about this <laughs> because we're 15 and why would we? <laughs> And then later, when she sees him run panting onto the bridge to see Matilda's ship leave and blush thinking about her, she looks sad, but she also looks sort of resigned. Mm -hmm. She walks away with Haro trailing after her, and she seems to have accepted, okay, I guess Amuro doesn't have feelings for me. He has feelings for this other person. Yeah, resignation is sort of Frau's principal character attribute at this point. Until the bombs happen. Until the bombs happen. We see that while Frau is very willing to talk about duty and everyone doing their bit and doing what needs to be done, when it comes to Amuro, she suddenly wants to take risks that she shouldn't take. She suddenly wants to do things that are not necessarily the logical or reasonable thing to do, but she wants to protect him, just like she has always wanted to do what she can for him. Even though, as Mirai points out, oh, are you going to be better <laughs> at removing bombs than Amuro is? But in the end, everyone agrees with her. I think they agree with her all along. They just make themselves refuse. They all want to be out there too, but Frau is the only one who says it. And then when it looks like Amuro is not going to be able to do it, when he needs help, all of them rush out there. Even though one or two people could have done it. I particularly liked bright running and yelling, all of you stay in here. And everybody just follows him. <laughs> no, they're ahead of him. He's, <laughs> he's the last one out. That was great. Well, and, and everyone, including Mr. Mie Kai, sort of does their bit, right? Well, except for Fra, who I don't know why she's there. But <laughs> Does she go out? I don't remember seeing her outside. Now I don't remember. We'll have to go and check. If she doesn't even go outside, then so much the weirder. She was the most insistent about we have to go help and then she doesn't do anything. Anyway, you know, Ryu gives Hayato a hand up so he can jump into the cockpit and move the leg. And Kai drives the Jeep that's carrying all the explosives. Yeah, we get some real courageous action from Kai in this episode and no snark. It's true. Not one snark. <laughs> Not a single snark. We do, however, see Amuro reminded to sleep once and reminded to eat twice. Update the trackers. 
We learn a little bit more about why the white base is still allowed the autonomy <laughs> that it is, why it's still a bunch of teens running around with the most advanced ship the Federation has. There's some good news and some bad news here. The bad news is that because it's functional, because they're still winning combats, because they're doing okay, really, the Federation can't afford to give them any more soldiers. They just don't have enough people <laughs> to help them out in that way. But the good news is that Bright has a benefactor. We haven't met this person yet, but someone is looking out for Bright and keeping him out of the noose. Literally, it turns out, Matilda warns Bright that if not for the intervention of General Revel, then he would have been executed a long time ago. This isn't the first time we've heard about General Revel. Back when Matilda first arrived, she told the crew of the White Base that she was only there because of General Revel's personal intervention. And I told you to remember that name because it was going to be important. Well, it's still going to be important, but not quite yet. And thanks to the intervention of General Revel, Bright is going to get a promotion. We also, in this scene, get the first mention of something else that's going to be important, so keep an eye on it. The Federation is planning a major offensive in Europe. That's all we know about it, but keep an eye on it. Man, Matilda is tough as nails. Matilda is awesome. So I couldn't see exactly what you had written in your notes, but I saw you had written down Bright and Amro and Fra and Matilda's names. And there were some lines between them. And I thought you were drawing out like love triangles or something. <laughs> because I feel like Matilda flirts with Bright and Bright's not having it. <laughs> Matilda is definitely more interested in Bright than she is in Amro. And whether that's a romantic interest or that's a professional interest is up to the viewer to decide at this point. I don't get the sense that she's flirting seriously. I think she does it to discomfort Bright. <laughs> I think she does it to tease him because he's young and kind of self-important. She definitely enjoys teasing him. Yeah, uh, but she's flirting with Bright. She mostly ignores Amaro except to be like, except to back up Bright when Bright's like, Amaro, you need to be getting rest. Yeah, she's not particularly interested in the crew of the White Base, except insofar as they are piloting the White Base on the White Base is necessary. This is another one of those episodes that really emphasizes the distinction between the adults, such as they are, and the teenagers. There were a couple of times, especially early on, when Amro and Frau were having their... Not fight? <laughs> yeah, their fight about nothing, nothing special. That I was like, oh yeah, they're 15. Right, of course they're not having an honest conversation about their feelings. Why would they do that? Of course, Amro is vaguely embarrassed about his crush on Matilda and lying about it to Frau. Of course, Frau is jealous and walks away in a huff. Every time I see the white base with its disguise of vegetation looking sheets <laughs> upon it, I wonder whether somebody was actually out hacking branches and covering the white base with them or whether they have the military style netting that's made to through cloak various pieces of equipment in different terrain. And just imagining the vast quantities of that you would need to cover a ship like the white base. Oh, absolutely. The rolls and rolls of material being shuttled out every time they land in a forest. Well, and since the white base was designed for space, space. combat, <laughs> is there a cargo bay somewhere that's just full of all different possible terrains worth of camouflage? Like if you're in desert, we have these. If you're in forest, we have these. If you're in the Arctic, you can use these. But while the white base manages to go undetected thanks to its excellent camouflage, Matilda's transport craft, her Medea, does not. It gets detected by the Xeons, and they immediately are able to determine based on how quickly it's going that it's emptied its cargo bay, and that therefore it's made a supply drop somewhere in the area. 
Xeon is really clever. Like for a show like this, you would kind of expect the villains to be a little bit more bumbling, but over and over again, we've seen Xeon soldiers be very clever and see through ruses and deceptions. One thing that struck me a lot in this episode. So we open with a Xeon... Uh, I called it a USO show. <laughs> yeah, we open with a Xeon USO show. All the young guys are bored because it's some old man doing magic tricks. It's a patrol base. They are repairing equipment. They're hanging around, chatting. Their biggest problem is pigeons. <laughs> and bugs. And bugs. I love this moment when they're like, oh, we just want to go home to Xeon where there aren't any stupid bugs. And they actually animate bugs around a lantern. And there's a little bit of a sound of bugs after he says this line. Which felt to me like a moment where the show is pointing out that the people of the sides, the space noids, have more in common with each other than they do with Earthlings, regardless of their political affiliations. This is also the first time that we're seeing Xeon soldiers who are just doing their jobs. They're not doing it for honor. They're not Garma's personal guard. They're not Shar's commandos. They're not trying to seek glory. They just want to do their jobs and go home safe. And the only reason they decide to attack the white base is because they've heard that if they are able to defeat it, they will get to go home. That scene was very interesting to me and made me think of two things. The soldier who makes the proposal basically says he's gotten it cleared with their superior that if it's only if they're only risking themselves, then it's fine. Do what they want. And if they're successful, there's this potentially huge payoff. And he describes it as us young guys. And I thought of both kamikaze fighters who were, for the most part, very young men. And I, I half remember, but I might be mixing this up with other stories, but that there were <laughs> some very unlikely circumstances in which a kamikaze fighter would be allowed to go home. Some part of my brain feels like I heard a story or... Something that if you did manage to complete your kamikaze attack, but somehow survive it, that you could go home. <laughs> we'll have to look into that. I'm That doesn't ring any bells on my side, but it, it could be true. It's also possible. The other parallel I thought of, and this one I know is true, is that I'm mixing it up with something that the Americans did with their bombers, which was that if a bomber ran enough successful missions they could go home. The famous movie about this being Memphis Bell, which was the name of a bomber that actually managed to complete its full course of missions. And, and I had never noticed this before, there's a shot, well, I suppose this is our first look at the inside of a Lagun, but not just the main cockpit, but one of the lower turrety looking things. And the way it's drawn suddenly to me felt like a bomber turret looking up into the main part of a bomber. We see two new Xeon weapons in this episode. We get the <laughs> mini hovercraft bikes, which I want to remind everyone, these do predate the speeder bikes of Return of the Jedi by some years. If I remember correctly, those are called WAPAs. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then we get the magnetized plastic explosives that the Xeon WAPA riders use to destroy the Gundam's shield, that poor shield. That poor shield. And then to 
booby trap, mine. Booby trap. And then to booby trap the Gundam itself, ultimately requiring our very dramatic Amro disabling the bombs scene. I was glad that they explained a little bit more about the bombs themselves throughout the episode, because as we were watching, I asked a lot of questions. You know, first they go and they place them all on the Gundam. And the way they do this is actually very clever, coming back to your (laughs) talk of the Xeon soldiers. You know, obviously it's risky to be on these hovercraft with no shielding to protect you, but you're small and hard to hit. You're exceptionally mobile. Once they're in close to the body of the Gundam, there's really no way for the Gundam to shoot at them. So they place all of these explosives and then they zoom out of the way. And first, they're trying to actually hit the explosives with bullets. They're firing at the explosives. And I found myself wondering, I guess they don't have any sort of radio-based way to set off the explosives, which is how you think of those kind of things being set off. And they address that later. They're like, oh, we don't get any of the good technology. We don't get any of the good stuff. They do, however, have timers to put in as a kind of backup. 30-minute timers, though. Yeah, that does feel, well, perhaps cautious for their own side. They didn't know precisely how long it would take them to get the Gundam to where they needed it to be. They didn't know how well the ambush was going to work. Those 30-minute timers may have been for caution's sake for their own men. They also might not be timers that they can adjust. Since we know these are not top-tier explosives, they may not be that sophisticated. Fair. Perhaps the cleverest part of all, they then get to retreat to the tree line and just wait to see what happens. Although the whole time that they were watching, I kept thinking... One of them should shoot Amara. (laughs) Yeah, if they attacked, even if they didn't actually succeed in killing anyone on the white base, that distraction would be enough to get the bombs to go off without being disabled. I mean, they have, you know, seconds to spare in the most dramatic way possible. If the Xeon forces had actually attacked, there's no way Amara would have been able to get all those bombs off of the Gundam. That being said, by the end of that scene, I'm pretty sure the Xeon soldiers were rooting for Amuro to get the bombs off. Well, yeah, we get moments that I think of as somewhat grudging, but only somewhat respect from the Xeon soldiers. They comment among themselves, gee, I wonder who that guy is who's removing all the bombs. He must be real brave. And you feel like when they say brave, they mean stupid, but they they also are impressed. They laugh about it. And when they come out disguised as civilians to tease him, you know, they tease him about looking so grave, right? They tease him about looking serious or angry. And they're like, you just, (laughs) you just succeeded. What are you mad about? (laughs) And then they cheer him on a little bit. Good luck. Keep fighting. They don't seem terribly broken up about the fact that their plan didn't work. No, it probably helps that at most one of them died. I think there's one guy who gets caught in a bazooka blast early on, and then everybody else makes it out okay. Yeah, most of Amuro's attacks against the hovercraft scatter them, but don't destroy them. Yeah. Well, and like I said earlier, these are guys who are just here to do their job. They might want to go home, but ultimately, they're not really true believers. It's not offensive to their honor that Amuro managed to beat them this time. The other funny thing about that final scene, aside from the fact that Bright and Mirai figure out as the car is pulling away, like, oh, those were the guys. (laughs) Uh, Amaro's reaction to them, because Amaro thinks they're Earthlings. Amaro thinks they're Earth people, and he thinks to himself, these guys are so lucky because they're not soldiers. He doesn't say that, but I assume he's thinking it. I assumed the same thing. Earth people are so carefree, but they're not actually Earth people. And they're not actually carefree. They're apparently of a more cheerful disposition than Amaro. (laughs) And I do wonder if it's just impossible for him to imagine anyone in his situation not feeling the way he feels. 
I actually thought Amuro fought fairly well in this combat. Especially with his quick thinking using the shield to create sort of a big <laughs> gust of wind to blow all of the little hovercraft away. And but- jumping to avoid the difficulties of fighting in the trees. It did seem like that Zaku pilot he was fighting was accustomed to this terrain, and that gave him a distinct advantage, even if we know from the storyline that he's not a particularly good pilot. So Amuro was jumping over the tree line, jumping, as Nina pointed out, much like the powered suits in Starship Troopers would jump. But then Amro shoots one of the WAPA pilots and he freaks out because he sees a dead human body. I did feel before that scene when he was jumping, he was perhaps jumping too high because if he keeps low, he has cover. And this is before he's been spotted. This is when he's on his way to go help Matilda's ship. He, it also obviously takes him a while to figure out that he's being ambushed. He, he does a, show a little lack of caution in being led somewhere when he doesn't really know the terrain and doesn't really know what to expect. Absolutely. Especially since at that point he's already rescued Matilda and she specifically told him not to chase them too far. But this is Amaro's most consistent problem, right? He overcommits mm. to fights that he should be in only until he reaches a particular objective and then you should be withdrawing. Amaro's got that bloodlust. He did blame that guy he shot. It was his own fault for coming out here in that stupid unarmored thing. What does he expect? Flying around a neighborhood like this, unarmored like that. It's like he was asking for it. We did a little language-based poking around during this episode. I wanted to see whether the Japanese word that they use when Bright says, you're treating us as guinea pigs (laughs) to Matilda is actually guinea pigs or something else. It's morimoto, which is written in katakana. It's like marmot. And it is, in fact, one of the words that they use for guinea pigs. So apparently (laughs) that is the same in English as in Japanese. I have nothing special to say about it, but the musical cue at the end is very weird and felt very off-tone. It's a new one. We've never heard it before. And it's a little flute trilling at the end of the episode. It sounded closer to traditional Japanese music than any music (laughs) we have heard so far, which made it feel very out of place in the much jazzier contemporary soundtrack. There's also nothing that seems to cue it. There's no reason that that particular music would fit in here. Except perhaps that this episode ends in a weird, anticlimactic kind of way. And maybe they just felt the need to actually tell us that the episode is over now. During this episode, we brushed up against an interesting philosophy called Gekko Kujo that was deeply tied into the mindset of the Japanese military during its rise to ascendancy in Imperial Japan prior to and then during the Second World War. The term means surpassing your superiors, but in the context of Confucian philosophy in Japan, it means something like ruling from below. It's used to describe a government of people instead of of laws, that sort of thing, which, although generally frowned upon in Confucian philosophy, has, in this case, actually a very positive context. Gekko Kujo is used primarily to describe the Sengoku Jidai, the Warring States period, when the emperor was overthrown by the shogun, and the shogun was overthrown by the daimyo, and the daimyo were overthrown by their retainers, and the samurai were overthrown by the peasants. However, it made a resurgence in the 1920s and 1930s, when Gekko Kujo started to be used 
to justify the actions of ultranationalist junior military officers who were engaging in, quote, principled disobedience and acting without orders, motivated by their own moral beliefs. And this comes up in the episode when the young Xi'an soldiers decide to attack the Gundam without orders, but with their commander's tacit permission. Now, I usually think of principled disobedience by soldiers in terms of things like refusing to fire on a helpless target, refusing to go on a suicide mission, helping a wounded plane to land, things like that. But in Imperial Japan, the principal disobedience we're talking about took the form of murdering politicians, business leaders, and high-ranking army officers who were deemed insufficiently patriotic. And perhaps most famously, and with the most negative consequences for world history, in 1931 in Manchuria, some junior officers of the Japanese Kwantung Army decided to engage in some principled disobedience because they believed that a war with China was in Japan's national interest. So they staged a series of provocative attacks on Chinese forces in the area in the hope that the Chinese response would trigger a war. When the Chinese refused to oblige them, these officers went on to sabotage a small section of their own railway near a Chinese garrison, then blame the sabotage on the Chinese, and invade. We're going to have plenty more opportunities to talk about the details of these specific incidents in later episodes, but I do think it's important to talk about Gekko Kujo now and keep it in mind, because First Gundam really is a story about people near the bottom of the military hierarchy acting independently according to their own moral beliefs. The Xeon soldiers in this episode float the idea that if they are successful in destroying the Gundam, they will be allowed to return home from the Earth front. While there are some notable stories of World War II-era soldiers returning home before the end of the war, it was always more complicated than a single victory, no matter how tactically significant or morale-boosting. One of the most famous American war heroes was Audie Murphy, who was removed from the front lines in June of 1945 and came home to a hero's welcome. But in the three years between his enlistment and his return, I struggled to even begin to talk about everything he did and experienced. He was wounded numerous times, including a gunshot wound to the thigh that became gangrenous and required removal of part of his thigh muscle. He frequently took on dangerous tasks alone, finding and retrieving a lost squad while under machine gun fire, crawling out to a disabled German tank to further damage it with grenades, and storming a house full of German soldiers who had feigned surrender and killed his best friend. In perhaps his most famous action, he mounted an abandoned, burning M10 tank destroyer, shooting his carbine and the tank destroyer's 50 caliber machine gun at oncoming German troops for an hour. He stopped only when he ran out of ammunition. Didn't he kill like 50 guys? And was completely in the open. He had no cover whatsoever. All in all, he was in nine campaigns as part of the 3rd Infantry, and is one of the most decorated U.S. soldiers of the war, earning every military combat award for valor that the U.S. Army bestows, as well as French and Belgian awards. Wow. So he got to go home and do the hero's tour. He seems like he fought several wars worth of actions before he got to go home, though. And he is one who, I wonder a bit if Tomino knew his particular story, because he is someone who was very young. He lied about his age to join the army early. He was small. He was only, if I remember what I read, he was 5'5 and under 120 pounds. And they t tried to tell him he was too small for the infantry and have him go be a cook. But he was very insistent and a very good marksman. So they kept him. 
And he did a lot of activism after he returned home, talking about his PTSD and trying to raise awareness of PTSD in soldiers, trying to get more research about it. One of his ex-wives described the intense guilt he felt at having created orphans. Uh, he wrote a book about his experience and also did some acting and was in the movie version of the book that he wrote. And he talks about, in particular, that incident after his best friend was shot by the soldiers who pretended to surrender and the feeling he had that it was like a nightmare. He went immediately cold and logical and all he wanted to do was kill all those men. That it was like something came over him, but that that was not... That wasn't something glorious. That wasn't some great thing. It was horrifying. It was terrifying. And I'm sure there are many stories like that from the war, but so many things about that feel true to the experience that Tomino is portraying in the show that I, I wonder if that was a story he was very familiar with. The Memphis Bell, which I mentioned in the talkback, was one of the first B-17 heavy bombers to complete 25 combat missions, and its crew then returned to the home front to sell war bonds. <laughs> the Army Air Corps had decided the combat duty ended with 25 missions, but there was clearly some rules lawyering in how those missions were counted. For instance, because the crew had sometimes had to use other planes while the Bell was being repaired, they actually had to fly a 26th mission, the count apparently being for the plane and not the crew. Questionable rules aside, 25 missions may not sound like a lot when the war lasted six years, but many U.S. bombers were engaged in daylight bombing. Better accuracy, but much more dangerous. For every mission, one in three B-17s didn't return. Sorry, you said one in 13? One in three. You had a one-third chance of not coming back. Ugh. And the Memphis Bell wasn't even the first B-17 to complete its 25. The actual first was the bomber Hell's Angels, a week before the Bell. It is somewhat unclear why the crew of the Memphis Bell was the one brought home, but part of it seems to be the documentary had already been made about them, and the uh, somewhat disputed story that the pilot had named the plane for his sweetheart. It's also possible he named it for a riverboat in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> I can see why they went with the sweetheart story. In Japan, several fighter aces returned home before the war was over, but it wasn't a reward or a morale-boosting effort. Saburo Sakai and Hiroyoshi Nishizawa are two of the best-known Japanese aces of the war, but their return home is tragic. Sakai was severely wounded at Guadalcanal, taking a bullet to the head. Blind in one eye, bleeding heavily, and mostly delirious, he made the almost five-hour flight back to base. He was sent back to Japan for surgery and to recuperate, and although his doctors told him he would never fly again, he spent one year as a flight instructor before being transferred to Iwo Jima due to lack of skilled pilots. Nishizawa returned to Japan because his air group needed to replace its losses. The 10 surviving pilots of the air group were made instructors, but Nishizawa chafed at the months of inaction and was soon back in combat. So it sounds like while there were stories about people getting to go home, in real life, it was not this uplifting, great homecoming experience. It was the least that could be done after you had already suffered all the horrors war had to offer. Well, and... Particularly in the Japanese case, they really couldn't spare you. <laughs> they had so many fewer soldiers, they simply couldn't do what America did and sort of pick a feel-good story and have that person come home and sell war bonds. Like, that would not have been feasible for them. Yeah, both Sakai and Nishizawa went back to the fight, right? 
Yes. Nishizawa died and Sakai survived the war. He actually committed some of that disobedience we talked about earlier. He had been sent on a suicide run. They could not find their target and it was getting dark. And he finally decided that it was a stupid and wasteful mission and he went home. He has actually become pretty famous after the fact. He wrote a book about himself called Samurai because his nickname was Sky Samurai. It was translated into English. He's met with a lot of American airmen, some of whom he was in dogfights with. He's gotten to meet some of those people, including, I think, the guy who shot him in the head. And he brought the, the helmet so they could see like how good a, the marksmanship was. He has also been very critical of the emperor's role in promulgating the war, which has made him somewhat unpopular with fellow surviving airmen in Japan. But he has a strong feeling that they should not have gotten into the war in the first place, and that ultimately the responsibility for that rests with the emperor. We saw some new Xeon weapons in this episode that it turns out are actually quite old. First up, those magnetic Gundam Buster bombs. These are, I'm absolutely sure, based on some real weapons from World War II, specifically one from Germany and one from Japan. The German one is the Hafthaladung, which I'm sure I'm mispronouncing because I don't speak German. The name Hafthaladung means adhesive hollow charge, but it was also called a Panzernacker or tank breaker, which is the name I'm going to be using because I can pronounce Panzernacker. <laughs> These are cone-shaped bombs that look a little bit like a megaphone with no handle. The loud end is fitted with three huge magnets designed to clamp onto the armor of a tank so that the blast from the bomb directed by the funnel is all channeled directly into the armor plate. A soldier would arm it by pulling the igniter on the narrow end and then run like his life depended on it for the next seven and a half seconds. A well that is a short fuse. Yes. <laughs> A well-placed Panzernacker could blast through five and a half inches of armor plate, or 20 inches of concrete. Wow. Yes, but that well-placed part was the sticking point. A soldier had to get right up next to a tank and stick the bomb on directly. Aldi Murphy style. Most military experts agree that infantry attempting to get up close and personal to enemy tanks are going to encounter some significant difficulty. <laughs> you don't say... It might have been easier if they had WAPAs, but they didn't. So, in 1944, the Panzernacker was declared obsolete, and it was replaced by the longer-ranged Panzerfaust. Fun note, Panzerfaust means tank fist. Tank punch! Over in the Pacific, the Japanese had their own magnetic tank killer, the Type 99 AT mine. For these, picture a water canteen with four square magnets attached at equal intervals around the rim. Precise placement of these was less important, because unlike the German version, these weren't shaped charges. They had a timed fuse, and they were lighter, so you could just arm one and then throw it at the target from a safer distance. They weighed less than half of the Panzernacker's seven pounds, making them pretty easy to throw. But because it packed a smaller and unshaped payload, the Type 99 could only penetrate about 19 millimeters, or around three quarters of an inch of armor. They got around this by putting two Type 99s together and throwing them as one bomb, which increased the penetration to around 32 millimeters. It was enough to crack the armor on a lightly armored vehicle, and with precise placement could even threaten the Sherman tank, which although it had armor about 76 millimeters in the thickest parts, also had very thin side armor. Here's an interesting side note that I came across as I was researching this. When America started in the Pacific War, they were using the M3 Stuart light tank, 
which had a 37mm gun, 44.5mm of armor, and a maximum speed of 36 miles per hour, making it superior in every way to its Japanese counterparts. Japanese tankers had really considerable difficulty dealing with the Stuart, and they actually captured one of them later and tested it, and realized that the armor-piercing rounds they were firing from their tank cannons could not penetrate the Stuart's armor from any direction at any range. Whoa. The only way to do any damage to it was to hit the same point with multiple high explosive rounds. That would crack the armor, but still wasn't enough to penetrate the interior. Wow. The Japanese had to rely on ambushing American tanks, firing multiple rounds from close range, aiming for vision slits, turret rings, tracks, and other vulnerable points in the hopes of knocking out the American tanks. This was not often successful. This reminds me of the Gundam vs. Zaku problem. <laughs> I'm getting direct hits on it. How is it still standing? How have I not penetrated its armor? Well, and when Char begins concentrating all of his fire on the Gundam's face, Sela warns Amuro that multiple direct hits to the same location might crack the Gundam's armor. The other machine I wanted to touch on is the Wapa. These are those Xeon hoverbike things used by the squad that attacks Amuro. And you might see these sort of grasshopper-shaped bits of science fiction nonsense and assume that, like the hovering turrets of the Magella attack tanks and the elevated cockpit of the DOP fighters, they were dreamed up by some mechanical designer who has only a loose grip on reality. But back in the late 1950s and early 1960s, a U.S. military contractor called Piaseki Aircraft Corporation, working on a contract to design a flying jeep, built a real-life WAPA in all but name. There will be links to pictures of these in the show notes, but honestly, just picture a WAPA, and you're most of the way there. The Air Jeep, as it was called, and for some reason they spelled Jeep with a soft G. Probably because Jeep is trademarked and they, they didn't own the trademark. That's actually probably true, yeah. <laughs> Jeep. Air Jeep. <laughs> it had two enclosed rotors oriented, one in front, one in back, with a pilot seated in between. The Air Jeep, or Air Geep prototype, could skim the ground, fly as fast as 85 miles per hour, and soar to nearly 3,000 feet. What? It was maneuverable enough to fly through a forest hidden by the tree line, and could be armed with a recoilless machine gun. And because the gun was mounted above the rotors, the Air Jeep could peek up and fire without leaving its cover, unlike a helicopter where the rotors are above the weapons. And this is all stuff that we see the Wapas do in this episode. They sound pretty amazing. Were they really hard to fly or just too expensive? No, apparently they were really easy to fly and pilots loved them. <laughs> but it probably was the expense. I haven't been able to find a really good explanation for why the program was canceled. Piaseki Aircraft Corporation says it was because of military budget cutbacks. And that's probably at least partially true. It does seem to be the case that the Air Jeep, while it did have significant advantages over both aircraft and ground vehicles didn't have enough advantages to justify its cost. The other thing is that whatever the Air Jeep's many advantages and its various possible applications, the original design specifications issued in the late 50s called for a fast-moving air vehicle that could deliver tactical nuclear weapons and then escape their blast radius. And the program was canceled around when the U.S. military was starting to rethink the wisdom of simply nuking all of their problems away. <laughs> this was also after the Bikini Atoll tests, where it became clear that the effects of a nuclear blast were actually in an area much larger than just the blast zone. Well, and I imagine no matter how well they handle the appeal of being on an essentially unarmored fan rocket with a nuclear bomb underneath you is, uh, <clears throat> shall we say, limited. I can't imagine why. <laughs> I can't imagine the pilot who would do that. I mean, I'm sure they exist. I'm sure there are people that 
quote unquote brave. <laughs> Amaro would do it. Next week, we'll return with episode 1.15, The Lost Episode, to talk about skinny boys, elite Xeon parasailers, mobile suit martial arts, Amuro trusts that Zaku as far as he can throw it, a three-pack of orphans, rock and rollin', Amuro asks, are all adults evil? Secret Hiding Places 101, and a magical Amuro transformation sequence. Will you be able to survive? Make sure you do all the podcast things. Like, subscribe, share, and pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on fine podcast services everywhere and on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter at Gundam Podcast. Check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for episodes, show notes, and more. And you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or shout your wrong Gundam opinions to us directly by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, why don't those traumatized 15-year-olds just talk about their feelings on any busy street corner? We'll totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. so much cutting back and forth to do with this because we have not been chronological at all. Apparently they did not have a continuity person. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> no, there's literally somebody on staff whose job is continuity. What? Well, they're bad at their job. Oh, wow. Nab it. <laughs> the wind disagrees. The wind has a lot to say about the title. So does the subway. <laughs> <laughs>